1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. The word of the Lord. Probably didn't have a chance to miss me yet. For anybody who doesn't know, I am not our pastor. He's away, flying to Disney World. I think that's the one in Florida. Um, with his mother-in-law and his wife. And it's my privilege to preach. We're between sermon series, and Jonathan told me I could preach on anything I wanted to preach on. And we'll see after. Yeah, I know, Bernie. He assigns you all the toughest topics in the, in the scriptures and then tells me I can do whatever I want. But you do such a good job with it, and I may only get this uh, chance once. We'll see how it happens. But let's open in prayer before we start. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to uh, share something from your word that has uh, spoken to me. I pray that it would also uh, speak to everyone here tonight. I pray that the words would not just be my own, but they would be the words that your Holy Spirit has given me. Thank you for all that you do for us and the great promises of Scripture. Lord, we just uh, give this time to you, in Jesus' name, amen. So one of the great things about getting to preach once in a while um, is that everybody gets to know a little bit more about me, um, they don't always get to talk to all of you, so I have a great opportunity tonight to share something with you about, uh, you guys probably don't know, and you probably can't tell, uh, I don't give a lot of outward signs, but I am extremely wealthy. Uh, you probably can't tell by... The car I drive, which has uh, Gorilla Tape on the front of it. As a matter of fact, I think there's 100,000 miles on the Gorilla Tape. You certainly can't tell by my clothes. I did dress up tonight since I'm preaching, but uh, I try to keep it a secret there. And if anybody's visited my house lately, this does not look like where a wealthy person lives, um, but it's good to be incognito. But seriously, I am like filthy rich, and I want you guys to know that about me. Because it's just, you know, it's an important thing to know. Because the other day I was Googling and I went to globalrichlist.com and I plugged in my salary and my benefits and I found out that I am in the top 0.05% of the world in the wealthiest people. Now I know not everybody's great at math, so in case Jonathan listens to this later, I want to explain it so he can understand it. If you take 10,000 people at random and I'm in that group, I would be the fifth, fifth wealthiest person in that group. So I encourage you all to go home and, and do that for yourself if you want. You can also do an asset-based one. It didn't work too well for me. I don't have a ton of assets. But you know, if your house is paid off and you've got a big 401k, even without a lot of income, you can uh, go be impressed by how rich you are. And so I think I'm really bringing a message of good news tonight because I think probably most of you are really rich too, and you might not have known it. So you're welcome for that. And I want to drive my point home with a couple of photos. I forgot to mention, I went back to this site and I put in the Massachusetts poverty line level for a family of eight. 
you'd still be in the top 1% of the world, less than 1% of the world, and their wealthiest people. So that is truly good news. So I think for me, as I, you know, move around the world, I think this is how I go to the store, and that's how rich people go to the store. You know, someday, maybe when I'm really even more filthy rich, I'll have that nice car there. But there's some other people around the world that they think, this is how I go to the store, and this is how rich people go to the store. And then similarly with the housing, you know, I think this is where I live, and that's where rich people live. You know, someday my house might look like that. If enough of you come over and help me, I think that's my vision right there. No? Okay. Mubashir says yes. Kerry says no. But there are a lot of people out there that say, this is where I live, and on the right is where the rich people live. So I think that might drive point my home. Drive point my home. Drive home my point because... I think it's really important for me to let you know that this scripture passage, which is titled in some of your Bibles, Instructions to the Rich, is not one you should skip over. It's really easy for me and for all of us to say, oh, I'm not rich. Let's go on to the next passage that might apply to me. I think the passage does apply to us as we sit here. I also, it's important to me that we look at the passage in context. Um, 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 3, is all about money. As a matter of fact, um, if you have a bulletin and you look, we have a statement on giving in there. And it tells us at the beginning of the statement that nearly one quarter of all of Jesus' teachings are on money, which is pretty amazing when you think about it, to quantify it that way. Jesus thought it was a pretty important topic. And so we don't preach about it a lot, but Jonathan gave me a chance to preach on anything, and I said, well, let's preach on money. So starting in verse 3, Paul talks about the warning about having a love for money, how bad it is if money is too important to you. Verse 10 of this chapter is a really famous verse and often misquoted. It says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. You know, our passage that we're looking at tonight, 17 through 19, really, I think, explains that verse quite a bit how the love of money can be the root of all kinds of evil. And that second part that's always forgotten, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This is the context that we're looking at our passage in tonight. This is the context that Paul wrote it in. And I think that's important. So hopefully now you have a little bit of the idea of the context and you have a, maybe, maybe you're starting to think that you're richer than you thought when you walked in the door, which is a good place to be. So let's read the scripture passage again, one of the benefits of having a nice short passage, we can read this a bunch of times so you'll remember it, not just the one time that the scripture reader reads it. Hopefully what I have on my notes matches what's behind me. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So I kind of summarize this first part as God wants us to place our hope in him rather than in money. That's my first key point. God wants us to place our hope in him rather than in money. He starts off by saying, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. 
I think everybody here who's an adult probably is old enough to remember the financial crisis of 2008. It wasn't that long ago. It was a time when people lost a lot of money if they had money in the stock market, um, house values if they had house values. And here in the Northeast, we were a little bit insulated from it even. There are still communities in, in mid-America, in Florida, where there are just house after house after house sitting foreclosed, unoccupied. It was a devastating time. So imagine, if you have to, I don't know, maybe some of you don't have to imagine because you lived it, but imagine if you were in 2008, in the beginning, and you had this nice big 401k and a house that you had some equity in, and you were putting your hope in those things. Those were the things that allowed you to be able to sleep at night. Those were the things that allowed you to feel like you'd made it or that you were important. And then as the weeks go by and things start to die, the stock market's plummeting, your house value's plummeting, your 401k's plummeting, and then maybe you lose your job, okay? So now you're unemployed, you don't have enough retirement, and you're upside down in your house. If your hope was in those things, where are you going to be? You're going to be depressed, I would think. You're going to be uneasy. You're going to be anxious. You're going to have trouble sleeping. If your hope was never in those things, then you might be the same joyous person you were before those things happened how Paul commanded us to be in Philippians, to be joyful in all circumstances. The average person in 2008 lost one quarter of their net worth. For me, it wasn't a big deal. Didn't have a big net worth, and thankfully I didn't lose my job. But I know for some of you, and for many of our friends and neighbors, it was a big deal. If you were almost about to retire, well, you probably had to add a few years onto that plan. That can be very upsetting when you don't have a future that you have rooted in God. I know there's lots of people out there that tell us we need to be prepared, right? We can listen to financial analysts, even Christian ones, that tell us you better have six months emergency fund in the savings. If you want to retire, you have to have $1 million in your retirement, maybe $2 million in your retirement. I hear that a lot now or more, depending on the lifestyle you want to achieve. I'm not saying that's wrong. This isn't a sermon about what to do with your money. This is a sermon about where to place your trust. So if you need a six-month emergency fund because you can't sleep, think about where your trust is. Think about who you have hope in. If you need to have that retirement fund because that's the only way you can feel good about your future, you need to think about where your trust is, where your hope is, because that's really what makes all the difference. It doesn't matter if you have a lot of money in savings or you don't. If you have a high-paying job or you don't, what matters is where your faith and your hope is. I want to look at the second half of verse 17 even more closely. It says, But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. You see, we cannot trust in riches, and we cannot trust in our ability to provide them. You're one slip and fall away from providing the riches that you think you can provide. You're one you know, layoff away from paying all your bills. You don't want to put your faith and your hope in that. You want to put your faith and your hope in God. We just finished that sermon series on Philippians. I've referenced it a couple times. I'll continue to, to drive some of those points home. Paul shares his secret in there to being content in every circumstance. Anybody remember what his secrets were? If you were part of the small group, hopefully we pulled them out when we were going through that book. But his secrets were this, that that he can do these things through God's strength, that is, being content in all circumstances. So he's counting on God's strength to actually even do that, to be joyful in those circumstances. And 
He has a complete confidence that God will provide all of his needs. And I know Paul's going to define needs maybe a little differently than we might, but that may be something we want to think about redefining in that sense. I want to give an illustration of someone who lived that way. Anybody here know who that is? I'll be a little interactive like Bernie. I know Kerry does. George Mueller is his name. George Mueller was a pastor in England, and you should read his biography. He lived to be like in the 90s. He preached like three times a week for 60 years and then preached every day for the last several years of his life as he traveled around preaching. One of the other things he did was open a home for children. Um, He was basically called father to like thousands of kids, I think 2,000 at least. Well, here's a story about George Mueller that is true. It's in his endorsed biography by his relatives. I think we can have confidence in this story. It says, one morning, all the plates and cups and bowls on the table were empty. There was no food in the larder and no money to buy food. The children were standing waiting for their morning meal when Mueller said, children, you know we must be in time for school. So lifting his hands, he prayed, dear father, we thank thee for what thou art going to give us to eat. Immediately, there was a knock at the door. The baker stood there, and he said, Mr. Mueller, I couldn't sleep last night. Somehow I felt you didn't have bread for breakfast, and the Lord wanted me to send you some. So I got up at 2 a.m. and baked some fresh bread, and I've brought it. Mr. Mueller thanked the baker, and no sooner had he left when there was a second knock at the door, and it was the milkman. He announced that his milk cart had broken down right outside of the front of the orphanage. And he'd like to give the children his cans of fresh milk so he could empty his wagon and repair it. God wants us to place our hope in him rather than in money. A lot of people would tell George Mueller he was stupid. He was endangering the lives of those kids. But he trusted in God. And his biography is evidence that God met every need that he had and every need that those children had. Moving on to verse 18 and the first half of verse 19, it says, command them, oh, let me give you my big point first. Oh no, that works. You move the slide for me. It says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up a treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. And my idea there is, in sharing what God provides, we are building a foundation for the future. Paul rightly points out that there is one way to prove that we do not have hope and riches, and it's by choosing to be rich in good deeds rather than in money, to be generous, to share. And the great thing about this is that living in this way, we're able to be blessing other people, to be a witness for God. And it says in that passage to store up treasure as a firm foundation for the coming age, for heaven. There are a lot of benefits to being generous. And it certainly proves that you're not trusting in your wealth. When you're able to let go of it, to see it do other things, to give it to God. Paul's teaching probably seems really familiar. And I think it should. Because he's like ripping off Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 6 of Matthew, Jesus says this, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, 
But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says that our treasures here on earth are uncertain, just like Paul did in our first verse. Moth and vermin destroy, or some translations, moth and rust destroy. Paul says that what we need to do is store them up where they will be certain. Jesus says what we need to do is store them up where they will be certain, and that place is heaven. Jesus also adds something that Paul didn't add, which is that our heart will follow our treasure. If we want to talk about misquoted passages in Scripture, the one on the the love of money is certainly high up there, but so is this one. A lot of people get this verse backwards. And they say, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, as people, we train ourselves. We train our heart. What we value, what we seek after, what we spend time with, we grow in an affinity towards that stuff. And so if we're focused on that wealth, our heart becomes more and more in love with it. And that's really what Jesus is saying. And if we focus on him, if we look at some of the Things that Paul talked about, about knowing God, about everything else being rubbish. If we focus on knowing God, then our heart is going to grow more and more in love with God. And so we don't want to get that verse backwards. Where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. So we want to think about what we treasure. You know, this last Monday in our daily bread, they had a story that I thought was pretty interesting on generosity. I'm not saying we should do this as a church, but I'm not saying we shouldn't. Cheryl was in for a surprise as she pulled up to deliver her next pizza. Expecting to arrive at a home, she instead found herself outside a church. Cheryl confusedly carried the pepperoni pizza inside where she was met by the pastor. Is it fair to say that life hasn't been easy for you? The pastor asked her. Cheryl agreed that it hadn't. And with that, he brought out two offering plates that the church members had filled with money. And the pastor poured over $750 into her delivery bag as a tip. Unbeknownst to Cheryl, the pastor had asked the pizza shop to send their most financially strapped driver over. Cheryl was stunned she could now pay some bills. One of the cool things about something like this is Cheryl doesn't really have someone to thank. She knows all that money didn't come from the pastor himself. It came from the church. God provided it. She has no one to thank but God. And when we can bless people in an anonymous way, It's pretty amazing the impact that it can have on us and them. And we don't want to lose sight of that because generally people are pretty blown away by generosity and they want to thank somebody. And if they don't have someone to thank, they very well might turn to God even if they're not a Christian. I think the best way to reinforce that our hope is in God rather than in money is to be able to generously share with others what God has given us. 2 Corinthians 8, chapters, uh, verses 1 through 15, is a long passage that's all about this giving. I'm going to read it, and these three main points are what I want you to see. There's a church here that gave out of their poverty. They pleaded for the ability to be part of this giving. And I want you to remember that, as Paul says here in this passage, Jesus set this example for us. He was rich. He was in heaven. He had everything. And he became poor for our sakes. So really, when we're generous with other people, we're modeling what Christ has already done. 
If you want to turn to it, it's Corinthians 8, 1 through 15. I won't have it on the screen, but I am going to read it. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God, also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier, made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see to it that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but to also have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one doesn't have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As much as it is written, the one who has gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. I can't spend too much time on this passage. You know, I might have chosen this passage to preach on. Um, it, was, it was a tough second. This is a really, really strong passage by Paul on giving and testing your generosity. And he's basically saying that if you have something to give and a desire wells up in your heart to give it, a lot of us wait. And in a couple of hours, a couple of days, that, that goes away and we don't follow through. And that's what the Corinthian church was guilty of here. And so the other neat thing is that he says, you know, you're judged on giving based on what you have, not on what you don't have. So don't be embarrassed to give a small amount, whether it's money or time or however you're able to give. It's not that you have to wait until you have a lot of money to give and to give a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. You don't. There's other stories in Scripture about uh, people giving small amounts out of their poverty and, and being uh, more blessed by God because of that than people who gave large amounts out of their wealth. So, again, this really isn't a sermon about wealth and what to do with it. It's a sermon about not putting your hope and your trust in that wealth and being generous with it. Um, I immediately thought of a great example of this uh, picture and how it works when the Bible talks about having too much and too little and people sharing and how it works. The picture that you're seeing there is actually a family that we got to stay with in 2010 in Ethiopia when we went to adopt uh, Mubashir. And the woman on the left, her name is Berdakan. And any of you who are around the same age as me, maybe your parents told you when you wanted to not eat food that was on your plate that there are children starving in Ethiopia, right? Because there was a big famine in, in the 80s. And so she grew up in that. And she subsisted basically because somebody sponsored her through World Vision. And it totally changed her life. So she wanted to do that and return that favor. 
And I'll tell you, she does not live in great wealth, but she is able to help. I was going to tell her story, um, but I found that there's a video on their website, uh, and so I'll let her tell her own story. So I think that drives home many of the points. I hope you could all read the subtitles from where you were. So if we hold on too tightly to the money that God has given us, Paul tells us that we have one other problem. Our hands are full. See, we can't take hold of eternal life while holding on to money. I want to read the passage one more time. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous, willing to share. In this way, they will lay up a treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Let me read that last line one more time. So that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Why do we do all of this? So that we may take hold of the life that is truly life. Or as it says in the King James, so that we can take hold of eternal life. We can't take hold of eternal life while holding on to money. There was a rich man who approached Jesus. You probably remember the story. He came to him and he asked this specific question. He says, teacher, what do I need to do to take hold of eternal life? After concluding that the man had done a good job of keeping the commandments, which I don't know about you, but I can't really say that, Jesus told him that he lacked one thing. Jesus told him he needed to sell everything he had and give it to the poor and follow him. It says this man went away very sad. He went away very sad because he was wealthy and because he loved that wealth. His hope was in that wealth. And at least on this day, in this story, he wasn't willing to let go of that wealth so that he could take hold of eternal life. In that moment, he refused to let it go. He went away sad. We can't take hold of eternal life while holding on to money. I know there are lots of people out there who say you can have God and money. And it's true, you can. There are lots of wealthy Christians who have no issue with money. But it's hard. I think the scriptures teach us that. And I think, going back to my first point, every single one of us sitting in here is a wealthy Christian. And we've been called by Scripture to share with those who are not. We have too much. They have too little. And Paul says the goal is equality. Believe me, I'm not up here preaching political communism. But in a Christian world, that's what Paul is teaching. We need to share, especially with our fellow believers. The Scripture is clear on that. There will continue to be Rich Christians and poor Christians. I don't know why. That's the way God made the world. There are people who have and have more and have more on top of that and people who don't seem to have anything. And it has nothing to do with what we in America like to think it has to do with, with working hard, um, with not being lazy, 
A lot of times it has to do with where you were born, what village, town, or city you were born in. You know, there will continue to be wealthy Christians, but Jesus' message is clear. In Matthew 6, 24b on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you cannot serve both God and money. You can't have two masters. So if your money is your master, you need to get rid of it and let Jesus be your master. If you can let Jesus be your master and have money, well, that's the best thing because you are able to be an instrument of blessing to those all around us to fulfill the command that was given all the way back in Genesis when he told Abraham that his descendants would bless everyone on earth. I want to run quickly through my three points from the beginning of the passage. God wants us to place our hope in him rather than money. In the middle, we learned that in sharing what God provides, we are building a foundation for the future. And at the end, we can't take hold of eternal life while holding on to money. Let's pray. Father God, I know you gave this message to me, for me, that this is something that I can continue to work on. Lord, I hope that you gave this message to me for all of us. And I pray that it's something that as a church we would continue to work on. That we would be able to share with those in our community as well as those locally and globally that are in need. But most of all, I pray that we as a church, as individuals, would not put our trust and our hope in the riches of this world, which no matter how we might think they are, they are not certain, and we have no control over them. As much as we might plan and prepare for the future, it's not ours to control. Lord, I pray that you would work in all of us in our hearts to be generous. As we learned at the end of Philippians in last week's message and in the whole sermon series, there are many marks of a disciple, but one of them is generosity. Paul wouldn't have been able to do all the missionary journeys he did without the generosity of other Christians. Lord, that generosity will be shown differently for every single one of us. We all have different people that have touched our hearts and our lives, different ministries, different organizations, different parts of the world, different parts of the town, different things that you've given us passions for. Lord, I pray that our generosity would abound and that we would be known for our generosity. Father, we thank you that a life surrendered totally to you results in increasing love for you, and results in being able to take hold of eternal life and spend eternity with you, where it will all be equal and it will all be rich. But in this present age, that's not what we're called to do. We thank you that you became poor for our sakes so that we can become rich. We thank you that Jesus makes it possible for us to approach you in prayer and to one day spend eternity with you. And we ask and pray all of these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.